everybody, Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star. I'm grateful for you listening to the 64th episode of the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast. The goal this week, the goal every week, is to be worth your time. Uh, this week, we're going to do that with questions about what's an unfair question in a press conference. Uh, Nick Bolton picking off Patrick Mahomes, Dayton Moore saying the Royals can't count on Mondesi to play every day, and Salvador Perez and the Hall of Fame. The conversation is with Cliff and Mike Illig on a lot of topics, including the World Cup, and Patrick Mahomes' deal to buy into supporting Kansas City's ownership group. But I wanted to start here with the Chiefs because they'll be playing real-ish football for the first time since the Super Bowl this weekend uh, with the first preseason game against the 49ers. Depending on how much of a football dork you are, you might be interested in how teams are handling the switch from four preseason games to three. And it's it's one of the more interesting parts of this camp to me, which, <laughs> I don't know, probably tells you something about my dorkdom. But, um, you know, we're starting to see something of an answer from the Chiefs and Andy Reid. He said this week the plan for Saturday's game is basically for the ones to play the first quarter, the twos the second, the threes the third, and the fours the fourth. Now, look, it's not going to go exactly like that, right? Like, they're going to make adjustments, and there have been times in the past that he's pulled the starter sooner than he planned, and, you know, other times where he's left him out longer. Reed said he'll, he'll basically handle the three-game preseason schedule the same way he did the first three preseason games before, basically just you know, lopping off the fourth. And, you know, that means, you know, the ones and twos will get progressively more snaps and the threes and fours fewer um, as, as we play more games. That's going to limit the opportunities of guys down the roster, which just honestly sucks. But, you know, if we're just being honest, like dropping a preseason game for a regular season game is is well worth that trade, right? You know, those guys down the roster still have practice. You know, they still have this game this weekend. There will be, you know, two weeks of practice between the, the last preseason game and the season opener against the Browns. So, you know, anyway, I'll, I'm going to tell you, I wanted to use this topic, just three things that I'm going to be particularly curious about from this game, which Herbie and I will cover for you from Santa Clara. First is Orlando Brown. That trade that brought him here from Baltimore, that is the centerpiece of the Chiefs offseason. The single most significant part of the offensive line overhaul, which was the single most important part of the Chiefs offseason. It's like you, you you probably know the reports from camp have been, you know, pretty bad on him. And, you know, he said he's not worried about that, about the results, because, you know, he's working on different techniques. And look, like for whatever it's worth, I don't believe that he's just completely uninterested in results because it's a competitive dude, you know, and he's playing for a contract. And how could that be? But uh, I do think, though, like, let's pump the brakes a little bit on any freak out, right? Like, there's a natural adjustment here. And that's something we talked about in the minutes ever since that trade went down. Like, blocking for Lamar Jackson is only vaguely similar to blocking for Patrick Mahomes, right? And and it does make sense that Brown would be working through different sets, you know, trying to adjust how Mahomes prefers pass rushers to be washed and all those things. So whatever it's worth, when I was on camp on Thursday, I thought Brown looked pretty good in the team snaps. Um, he's a little stiff, right? But he's also a monster of a human being, which is going to play well in the run game. But, you know, look, either way, uh, this is the first time as a chief that he'll be blocking humans wearing different uniforms and i'm gonna be watching him um throughout you know not just saturday but throughout the rest of the preseason too uh number two the cornerbacks uh corner not quarter uh i think the chiefs are, are set at quarter uh but anyway the cornerbacks um the chiefs are on the wrong side of a numbers game in that position group they got 
Charverius Ward. They got Legarius Sneed has been playing a lot of slot and safety. Um, they've been rotating other outside corner spot. Mike Hughes and others, Rashad Fenton. Um, you know, every year it seems like there's a guy or two at that position who becomes available in training camp. So that's something to watch. But this is one of the biggest and, and really might be the biggest potential problem that uh, the Chiefs need to get fixed. So I, I, I want to watch that, um, especially early. You know, the 49ers have some guys. You know, they ha- they've got some guys, some receivers, some pass catchers uh, that, that can create some problems. Okay, the last thing I'm going to be looking for, uh, the number two receiver. And I'm, look, I, I'm not real high on, like, depth chart and, you know, following, like, the horse race between, you know, McCole Hardman and Demarcus Robinson. Because I think, look, um, at the end of the day, they're, they're, they're going to share a lot of snaps along with uh, Byron Pringle. But I do think it's important that they get more production from that group. And the talent is there, especially with Hardman. But the production needs to match. And I'm more open-minded on Hardman getting there than it seems like a lot of Chiefs fans are. Uh, because the plays are there for him to make. They've been there for them to make. He's just he's just got to make more of them, you know. And then the chances are he's going to get an opportunity to on Saturday that we're going to be talking about that night and, and a lot of next week. So that's where I'm at with this. Um, I know it's just preseason, and I'm not on either end of the spectrum here, really, with people who want to treat preseason games like the Olympics. And, you know, you're not a true football fan if you don't get super into these games. And, um, and I also... <laughs> don't really care about the people that, you know, there's people that make fun of preseason. They'd rather play in traffic than watch a preseason game. Look, to me, man, the games are interesting and it's cool to have football back, but, you know, let's not lose our brains about this. You know what I mean? So, okay, uh, guys, before we get to the rest of the show, here is the spiel. Three ass, and you know that we're all still cool if you do one or two or even zero, but I got to ask the first step. Please help support us by giving the Sports Pass a try. A dollar a month for the first three months or $30 for a year. Uh, just reach out to me, Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever, and, and I'll send them along. The second, please rate and review us. Uh, Savannah and I appreciate all the love you've given us already. We see you. We thank you. We see all the, the five-star ratings you've given us already. I'm just saying... If you haven't already done that, if you haven't already given us a rating and review, please do. It really helps us get the word out. Uh, but five stars only, guys. Help us out. Third thing I'm going to ask is if you want to participate in next week's show, please call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Put the number in your phone. Call anytime. 816-234-4365. Or as the great reader Michael points out, 816 beg idle uh all right guys uh no i'm asking a lot here but that's how it's going to be subscribe to the sports pass give us a five-star rating and review and call in with questions all right uh quick break and then we are back with your questions Hi, this is Rob Massar from Hendersonville. Last week, Anthony Sherman called out your colleague, Sam McDowell, on his uh, question to Dan Sorensen regarding his, uh, I guess, colored wristband and, more importantly, getting a shot, COVID shot. Uh, I called him out and said it was not a question. It was not an appropriate question. Um, I actually responded via Twitter thinking it was an appropriate question because we're all sports fans. 
Uh, obviously, if we're not in compliance, which is what the 90% of vaccinated players show that we, the Chiefs are and all that other things that play out, it is a very valid question, obviously, because we don't want our team to forfeit games. I wanted to find out, with this example, where you have seen other questions that you've seen skirted the lines of being fair or not fair to ask. Uh, maybe it's on a political fringe or something else, or is all questions that you pose or seem pose very fair um, in the context of uh, your position at the uh, at the star. Thanks in advance. I appreciate all your work. Bye. Okay, so first, this probably isn't going to surprise any one of you, um, anybody listening to this, but I'm with Rob. Uh, you know, the, the questions are absolutely fair. And they're fair for a lot of reasons, including just fan interest, um, you know, the lengths that the league has gone to encourage vaccinations. And, you know, the idea that an outbreak can cost a team a forfeit and it can cost players game checks, you know. Um, and look, I'm not here to crush Anthony Sherman. He was speaking from the heart and he has a perspective that I respect, but he is out of his depth on this one. And uh, but anyway, you're asking about unfair questions and like, honestly, like, I have a hard time thinking of many, you know, and, and look, maybe some of that is a, a, a personal bias that I recognize because of what I do for a living. Um, but I think it's more a feeling I have that is going to take a little bit of nuance to articulate here. So basically any question asked does not have to be answered by the athlete or the coach or whoever, you know, they can't tell us what to ask and we can't tell them what to answer. So if it's an unfair question, just say no comment or next question or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, I don't feel like it's that big of a deal. The, the, the other thing is that these questions have consequences for those who ask them. Like, you know what I mean? And, and so a question that an athlete or, or maybe even a fan might see as unfair, I'm going to look at that as a question that might negatively impact that reporter's credibility. So instead of arguing over this like fuzzy de definition about, you know, what's fair and what's not... I'm just over here more likely to think, you know, well, that was a dumb thing to ask because that reporter should have been smart enough to know how this would go. You know what I mean? So, look, that doesn't mean you can't ask tough questions. And uh, I I've always believed the idea that a lot of fans have that if you ask tough questions, you risk losing access is just not based in reality. Because for the most part, these guys respect tough questions. And besides, like, do you know how soft... <laughs> an organization would look if it banned a reporter for asking a question. You know what I mean? And look, the Royals went through this many years ago, uh, back in 2006, actually, when, when Dayton Moore's intro press conference got hijacked by a couple of radio reporters who were putting David Glass on blast. And the team pulled the credentials um, for those two reporters for a short time, if I remember right, um, you know, sort of under the idea that the press conference was for Dayton questions, not Glass criticisms, which, I mean, I get where they're coming from, but... Also, that could have been easily avoided by the club if they made glass available before that, you know, but they didn't. And the same way there's consequences for reporters, teams have some responsibility here, too. So anyway, um, I digress. Look, generally, I would tell you that the only questions I'm going to see is unfair are ones based on like personal attacks or things like asking someone to comment on something just unrelated to their job. You know what I mean? Like asking the first baseman why the pitching stinks, something like that. And look, maybe I'm the only one who makes this distinction, but that doesn't mean I'm, you know, good to go with, you know, 
every question, right? Like I get tired of questions in press conferences that are just like plainly performative, you know, that, that are done like less in pursuit of an answer and more to be able to like cut up some tape and play a question, you know, some sort of flex, but again, consequences, right? So, you know what, like all of this is <laughs> really mostly making me pine even more for the days of like true face-to-face -face access, like away from Zoom when you can ask uncomfortable questions in a more respectful and productive way. And look, like I, I know a lot of people got a kick out of the exchange I had with Jeff Long a few months back, for instance, but I'll always remember and look at that as an example of why this Zoom sucks stuff. Like, I'm sorry, this Zoom stuff sucks for reporters. It, it, it sucks for us. It sucks for the newsmakers. It sucks for fans. Because in normal times, like I ask that question to Jeff off to the side, like away from cameras, and it's just a lot more insightful and productive. So anyway i digress again um hope that makes sense all right um here's something on the royals hey sam mark over the bar um two questions if that's okay um and you can answer one or both or neither uh dave moore's comments on mondesi the other day regarding his or the royals inability to rely on him as an everyday player, about the harshest words I've ever heard Dayton Moore speak of any of the players. And I don't know if it was necessarily harsh or reverse psychology or just being fed up with the season and speaking out. I don't know, but it seemed uncharacteristic of Dayton Moore. I just want to get your opinion on that. If, uh, you know, what you think about the whole situation, what, if Montessi said anything about it or whatever. Second question, um, Nick Bolton in Chiefs training camp. Yes, it's training camp. He's picked off Mahomes a number of times. Um, is it something that's looked at as a positive for him or is it a negative for Mahomes or just training camp and nothing to get excited about? Thanks. Love the show. Bye. So, okay, so let's actually do the Chiefs part of this first uh, because it's quicker. The, the the only negative that I can even imagine about Mahomes in a training camp situation would be an injury. It, it is just really hard to imagine him being anything other than amazing at football when he plays. So I'm going to see that stuff as a positive for Nick Bolton, who I think can be a longtime starter for the Chiefs, even if I think we should keep in mind that Mahomes makes a lot of like sort of, you know, test me throws in training camp and the, and the preseason that he would never do when the snaps start to matter. So, um, okay, now the first question with, with Dayton and Mondesi. Um, the, the, the question, this is a reference to an interview Dayton did with Fesco in the morning on 610 Sports a week or two back. Bob Fesco's question ended with him asking, if the Royals could count on Mondesi and Dayton's answer sort of made the rounds. Look, I, I think the best way to do this is not just listen to a little clip that made the rounds, but just listen to Bob's question and, and Dayton's answer. So, okay, here we go. Mondi obviously has been a guy that has been banged up a lot through his career. How do you build going for 2022? How do you fit Mondi into that? Can you rely on somebody that's been injured so much over the course of his career? No, you can't. I mean, and, and, and we love Mondi to death, but I think it would be, as you put together this team, uh, it's it's very similar. Uh, it, it's different situations, okay? But, you know, when we were putting our team together 
uh, back in the early days. I mean, we had to put the team together as if, you know, Zach Greinke may not be a part of it. You just didn't know. And, uh, and if he is, it's a bonus. And so I think when we look at Mondi, uh, we're going to expect him uh, to be healthy. We're going to be positive about that. But he's proven that it's just not, you know, he, he hasn't been able to do that. And so, you know, I think when we put this team together, uh, we look at it and it's like, holy cow, Mondi's healthy and he's a part of the team. It's going to be really, really exciting. It's going to be really, really uh, powerful uh, in a lot of different ways, defensively, uh, offensively, speed-wise. I mean, there's a lot he can do. But uh, I think we're we're learning that we're going to have to manage his workloads in ways that you know he may not be a guy that plays you know more than a hundred games a year, best case scenario, and and hopefully he exceeds that expectation. But as as somebody who's responsible for putting together a twenty six man roster, uh, we've got to look at ways to um, you know uh, supplement and. Um, Perhaps um, you know be more balanced as if he's not you know a, a part of it. And if he is, that's great. And uh, we're certainly not we're not going to release him. We're going to continue to stay with him, obviously. But um, you know we've got to we've got to make sure we put that roster together in a ways that uh, certainly um, protect us. So. Right, like so, he started by like flatly saying that they can't count on him to play every day, right? Um, but when the answer gets like shorthanded in a headline or tweet or whatever, there's a lot in that answer we just heard that's not included, right? Because if we're honest, the answer Dayton gave is the only answer anyone with the team can give, you know. And it's something that the club officials have felt for a while now. If we're honest, and I mean, like, can you imagine too? By the way, just imagine the justified criticism the justified criticism that would have come if he's like you know oh hell yeah of course we can like you know Mondesi is Cal Ripken like people would crush him for that and they should but if you listen to that entire clip I think you'll hear him say things like we love Mondi to death and that they're going to stay positive with him and of course he's part of what they're doing you know look I, I just I also think it's worth pointing out in the in the in the flow of that segment it's not like the interview was like stopped on that point you know what I mean like but to answer your question, like, really, I, I just think Dayton was being honest, you know? Um, I know him a little bit, and I've never found him to sort of, like, speak with agenda when he's talking to, to reporters, you know, to, to use, like, public comments to motivate players or create trade value or any, anything like that. He'll, he'll drop some stuff in press conference situations that maybe he shouldn't, you know, that, that maybe are a little too honest. But for me, that's part of his appeal. And it comes from a place of like just wanting to speak honestly to fans through the media. And like this can't be emphasized enough to like what he said cannot be disputed. Like it, it would be management malpractice to build this roster in a way that depended on Mondesi playing 150 games. You know what I mean? Like, again, can you imagine the justified criticism that would come if that's the way that they built this roster? But Look, fortunately for the Royals, um, they are pretty well insulated, you know, at that position with how Nick, how well Nicky Lopez has played shortstop, um, and also Bobby Wood Jr. And there just there aren't a lot of clubs that have three guys who can play above average defensive shortstop. So, look, if if Mondesi can play his way into being a central and dependable part of all that, then that's great. And the Royals are a lot better off. But I can't imagine anyone who genuinely believes the Royals would be smart to depend on that. So, um, okay, now let's do a couple questions here. We're going to do two kind of in a row uh, just because they're somewhat related. Okay, so first, here's Jeff. 
Hi, Sam. My name is Jeff. I'm calling from Gladstone. And my question is about Salvador Perez. One, do you think he is a Hall of Fame uh, caliber catcher? Do you think he can make it? And two, where, where do you think he needs to be stat-wise in order to get there? Is it uh, home runs? Uh, what, what metric do you think he needs to get to? Thank you. Bye. And now, uh, here's Chris. Hey, Sam. This is Chris and Lenexa. I hope you had a great vacation. Uh, I think I got a good question for you. Uh, the Royals have one Hall of Famer. The Chiefs have like 15. Um, each team has two championships and each team has appeared in either the World Series or the Super Bowl four times. So the credentials are really the same. Um, Salvi's having this career year. And people are talking about him for the Hall of Fame, but then you'll hear people say he's never going to get there. Um, I can make a real case that Amos Otis and Frank White are better than several Chiefs. You know, I think they were better than Emmett Thomas. I can name a couple others. Um, does baseball have a problem? Or maybe football takes too many guys, or maybe a little of both. That, my answer would probably be a little of both, but... But uh, what is your thoughts on Salvi and then the, the big picture of the two Hall of Fames? H have a good uh, week, Sam. Take care. Okay, so the, the first part is that Salvi has a shot here. Um, he's got a long way to go, um, but he has a chance. And there, there are a few different ways we can look at this. Uh, you know I like numbers, and, and right now his 27.6 career war is a little more, and this is off baseball reference uh, is 27.6 career war is a little more than half the average hall of fame catcher um his seven year peak his jaw score his war per 162 they're all below the hall of fame average but you can look at these things in a lot of ways right like if you compare him to yadi molina at the same age they're really close you know and and yadi has had a lot of success in his 30s and sadly will have to do the same and Look, like here, it's worth pointing out that so far in his 30s, and I know we're early, he's been better than ever at the plate. So catchers are different. And so I'm a little hesitant to give you a number of home runs he has to hit or all-star games he has to make or gold gloves or OPS or whatever. A lot of this depends on how long he can stay behind the plate, you know. And, you know, I think to get to the Hall of Fame, he'll have to stay at catcher for a long time. And, and that is far from a sure thing and, and not just because of all the talent the Royals have in the minor leagues at that position but I also think that if he was a central part of another Royals postseason run that would go a long way toward the sort of like love and respect that guys get into the Hall of Fame on so I know I'm not giving you any specifics here but that's because I don't think there's a specific to give you know what I mean like I, I think the most accurate way of saying it is that he has a chance that He's put himself in position to do it, you know, but that he still has a long way to go. And the standards should be really high, right? And now, so, so the second question, the one from Chris, um, we could debate that for months and not come to a clear consensus, right? So I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but the Baseball Hall of Fame has a lot of ways of entry. And there are a lot of inductees who waited a long time who were never voted in by the writers, you know, in the, in the, the 15 or 10-year window. 
Um, they waited a long time and spent years and years and years reading stories and hearing talk about how they shouldn't have been in the Hall of Fame. And now they're in the Hall of Fame. You know, look, my personal view on this is that Halls of Fame in general, I'm not just talking about baseball and football, but Halls of Fame in general are usually bigger than they should be. You know, uh, that like the Hall of Fame should be reserved for the absolute elite of the elite. You know, I, I believe that part of the honor should be that there are exceptional and elite and decorated players who can't quite make the cut. That's not a slight on anybody who would be left out, but it's like part of the honor for those who make it in. You know, does that make sense? So, look, the, the Royals are like, I would think something of an outlier in that their first World Series was one with a team with only one Hall of Famer. And their second World Series was one with a team that honestly probably isn't going to have any Hall of Famers unless, like we talked about, Salvi gets there. So that's unusual, um, right? But I don't know that I buy into the idea that we should like feel required to make Hall of Famers out of non-Hall of Famers simply because of, of a team championship, right? Like, and, and I do think, by the way, that that happens in football a lot, particularly with offensive linemen and defensive players. Um, but that sport is inherently subjective, you know, when it comes to these things in ways that baseball just isn't because of the way that the stats can be measured. So look, all those Hall of Famers from the Chiefs, and yet I think there's a great case to be made for Otis Taylor, you know, and maybe a few others. Like who's the guy from the Royals that you'd argue for, right? Like Frank White is the one that people usually mention first. And there's a really good case for Frank uh, because for a decade or more, he was the best defender at his position. And I'd be the first to congratulate him if, if he made it. But for me, and some of this goes back to what I was talking about before, like he just kind of falls a little short. Um, Dan Quisenberry, I actually think, has a better case than than even Frank does for a few reasons, including like I think the, like the specific way that he succeeded is not captured by the stats that we usually look at first. And, and also sort of, um, I think it's important and, and, and worth honoring where he was in the evolution of relief pitching. But again, for me, it just falls a little bit short. Amos Otis has a great case as the second best player in franchise history, but I don't hear anyone pushing him for the Hall of Fame, you know? Um, Zach Greinke is going to be in the Hall of Fame someday, I'm sure. And that 2009 season is just about as good as a pitcher can be. But, you know, by then, uh, it's already been 11 years and five teams ago that, that he was with the Royals. And, and when he goes in, he'll be remembered with the Royals, but he'll be considered more of like baseball generally than the Royals. You know what I mean? So, look, you didn't ask this, um, but I think there's at least four Hall of Famers on the Chiefs right now. Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, Tyron Matthew and Andy Reid. And then I would tell you that I think that Tyreek Hill and Chris Jones have a chance. Um, there's people that argue the other side about Matthew that he should that he won't get in and I I understand that, but he's just he's so damn good and and I think that as time goes on, he's just going to be more and more appreciated. That's how I see that going. So Anyway, I hope there's an answer in there somewhere. Um, and, uh, that's all the questions we have for, the, for this week. Uh, we're going to take one more break, and then we are back with uh, Cliff and Mike Illig uh, on a wide range of topics. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! 
Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Okay, let's finish strong. And this week I had the opportunity to spend a few hours with Cliff and Mike Illig. Um, you know, Cliff is the, the co-founder of Cerner and a principal investor in Sporting Kansas City. Mike is Cliff's son and a co-owner of Sporting. Uh, we talked about a lot of stuff and I mean a lot. And just straight up with you guys here, uh, Cliff is one of my favorite people to talk to. I, I just find him to be honest, often blunt, ambitious, unrelenting, creative, like there's just this really unique blend of being like data driven, but also really imaginative. And so anyway, I want to tell you that the conversation went to enough different places that I just, I can't do it justice with one column or one podcast or anything. So um, what we're going to do, I'm going to split this into at least three different columns and starting with one that's on the website right now about Cliff's part in landing World Cup games here in 2026 and what goes into that and what it would mean, not just for Kansas City, but also for, for MLS. Um, I've got at least two more columns to get you um, from that conversation and those will come in the next few weeks. But um, I also wanted you to hear directly from him here because uh, the year is 2021 and we're a multimedia company and all that. So anyway, um, we met at the Illig's Ranch, which like it's that place is something else. You guys like 9000 acres, like fishing ponds, hotels, restaurants, all kinds of spaces that are used for corporate retreats and, and, and other events. And, uh, we were originally going to meet at his office, but I think he wanted me to see the ranch. Like it just, which is a hefty drive South of Kansas city. But I think he just wanted to hear some of like how and why it was built as an example of sort of how he and the people around him built and operate both Cerner and sporting, you know, and, and the shorthand is that they are focused on people and they are focused on experiences and, you know, they'll, they'll build one thing to create value. And then they'll realize that they created another opportunity. So now they got to build something else and the cycle just continues like that. So anyway, here's the short version of the origin story about why he and Neil um, and Cliff has always been very clear that he didn't know much about soccer when they bought the team. But um, here's here's Cliff's version of why he and Neil bought the Wizards from Lamar Hunt. Yeah. But, you know, we look in that. I mean, I've, I've shared with you before, Sam, the reason we got into soccer was not because we wanted to be sports mogul. It's because we didn't want... <clears throat> Kansas City lose soccer, and that's what was yeah. going to happen. Yeah. You know, the league had the Wizards vector to Philadelphia yeah. back in 2006. Yeah, wasn't the story that, that uh, the players were told that they were going? Yeah. Now, I don't, you know, I wasn't close to, all that close to it then, but Lamar matched up with Neil and I and said, look, we're going to become kind of less major league. Yeah. Yeah. If we lose soccer in Kansas City, I mean, he loves soccer. So, uh, you know, we, we kind of jumped in with both feet. 
the league is just so different now than when Cliff and Neil bought in. Um, it, it's just sort of like, you know, professionalized, for lack of a better term, you know, from a sort of lightly funded idea that a lot of people had a lot of skepticism about to, you know, a more mature league, you know, where some franchise valuations are approaching a billion dollars. So it's pretty remarkable when you think about it. And, you know, look, like anything else, uh, there's been some good timing and good luck involved, but it's also involved some careful risks and, and thought out business strategies. And as much as the league has grown and MLS like regularly has higher per game attendance than the NBA and NHL, even as like, I think we all understand that's not exactly like apples to apples comparison, but that league just has so much more space to grow into. Um, and here, here's Cliff talking about some of that. Things like, okay, we got X number of markets around the country where the team, the MLS team, is underperforming the potential of that market? Uh, underperforming the revenue? Oh, underperforming, you know, a lot of uh, attendance and revenue and uh, popularity of the sport, broadcast fans and that, you know, and, and you know, you look at, you look at, and I don't want to pick on Clark, but you look at Dallas, you look at Houston, you look at... Uh, uh, Chicago, Chicago, New England, Denver. Keep in mind, most of those are NFL owners. Yeah. Okay. We just don't. We're not getting. I mean, the size of those markets, we should be doing. In Houston, that team just sold. But in Houston, their revenue was um, in, a, in like the sixth or seventh biggest market in the country was uh, probably just two thirds of ours. No kidding. Yeah, and that, and that and that's that's not good, right? right. Yeah. That's the league is not generating the the impact that it ought to have. Yeah. So there, again, there's plenty of things to go work on. Yeah. And we kind of do it. Not we don't we don't throw rocks. Michael's very careful about the way he manages his presence on the on the on the product strategy committee. I'm careful. Beckerman's careful about because you know we got. 22, 23 billionaires mm-hmm. as owners of, of of teams in MLS. I mean, they're and they're there's only a couple, three of them that made their billions the old-fashioned way, where their folks gave it to them. Okay, the rest of them are, are guys like Larry Berg and and David Tepper and and guys who made it themselves, and they made it themselves because they're damn good. They're smart and they're damn good at what they did. Mm-hmm. Now, we just need them to take that energy and that <laughs> what made them good at what they did to have the wealth ne- necessary to go buy a team. We need that applied. Yeah. Okay? And, the, and, the, and our best approach to get them to do that is to create an example for them. Yeah. Okay? And just say, hey, do you really, you really want to get the shit kicked out of you from the, the guys in little old Kansas City? <laughs> okay? On the field or in, or in the business. There's some interesting stuff in there, right? Um, You know, there's some growth that the league can still have. And I thought this was interesting that Cliff talked about there being like just shy of a million TV households in Kansas City, but something like four million TV households in smaller markets in the region, you know, like Wichita and Omaha and Springfield, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, place like that. Um, and, and the opportunity is there for sporting to connect with those people and, and turn them into the sort of fans like, you know, that buy T-shirts and watch games and plan a road trip to Kansas City around a game. So it's it's an interesting spot, you know, uh, because sporting is essentially like maxed out on TV, on ticket revenue, um, I should say. Like, they're not expanding the stadium. They can't really charge a bunch more for tickets. So they need to be a little more creative and maybe get more different people in and out of games. And we'll get into some of that stuff uh, more soon in some columns. But 
Um, okay, I want to play a couple more clips. Um, here is, um, it's two clips, but making the same point. So, um, all right, so we, he, here is Cliff and Mike, mostly Mike, um, talking through how the deal came together for Patrick Mahomes to buy into the club's ownership. Um, he mentions Chris Cabot. He'll mention that name here at the top. And, and Chris Cabot is Patrick Mahomes' agent. Um, okay, here we go. Uh, connected with Rob Heinemann. You know I do. Yeah, I know Chris pretty well. Uh, connected with Rob Heinemann. Rob called me and said, hey, give Cabot a call. He wants to chat. Not sure what he's got going on. So uh called Chris, and he's, he said, hey, let's get together. So this was May of last year. Uh, took him to lunch, and he gave us the whole spiel on Patrick and dominating and transcending the game and his investment in the Royals and would we consider um, allowing him an investment opportunity in soccer. Uh, at the time they were about to do or just did their uh, deal with Brittany and the NWSL. Um, so that was kind of the first conversation and it kind of evolved from there. Um, you know, I think we you can opine on this, but we, I mean, just, we have, organizationally, it was just kind of a, a cleanup process to do on legal organization and structure. They don't, okay, so um, I, I'm just pausing here because uh, they, they went into some stuff about like really into the weeds about star bonds and also about like redoing some of the organizational structure to allow for these sort of like one-off ownership opportunities, you know, like similar Matthew McConaughey has in Austin or, you know, Will Ferrell and a bunch of others have with LAFC and okay. Um, here we're going to pick back up with, with Cliff. And when Cliff says, uh, the deal with John, he'll use that term, the deal with John, he's talking about Mahomes buying into the Royals with, uh, chairman John Sherman. So, um, okay. We're going to pick back up here with Cliff demanding things they don't you know, he needs something from us he'll let us know and we'll do the best we can and he'll pay for what he needs to and i mean he's just a he's just a solid guy and he but he is very interested in the role of sports in the future of kansas city yep and he's going to do everything he can to make it bigger and with all due respect i mean i don't think he he doesn't think first about his economic and legal relationship with the Hunts when he thinks about that. Mm-hmm. He thinks about Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And that's meanwhile he did does the deal with John and very similar to the to the deal we did with him and then he he, he worked with us and, and he loves soccer. Mm-hmm. And you know, partly because of what Brittany's been doing with the NWSL, but he on his own, independently, loves being out there, he loves the game, he loves the environment. And he thinks soccer's got a lot of upside, and he wants to be able to help, and he'd like to be able to ride the benefit. So, okay, guys, I hope you got something out of that. I Look, I love the conversation. Um, I, I really like the, the Mahomes explanation and some of the stuff about the future of the league and World Cup and stuff, and I can't wait to get more of this out to you um, in a couple more columns in the, in the next few weeks. I thought it was just really interesting stuff. So um, a lot more on that soon. And uh, and by the way, like probably around the Chiefs opener, so um, the, there'll be something with the with the Mahomes deal. So anyway, I uh, hope you look out for that. That is the show for this week. Um, one quick reminder: uh, if you know someone interesting in Kansas City doing interesting things that you'd like to hear about on this show, please drop me a line. Um, okay, I appreciate all of you for listening, and I hope we're worth your time. Uh, once more, please reach out to me if you can help support us with the Sports Pass, and please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. 
Thanks to everybody who called in, even those we couldn't get to. Thanks to Cliff and Mike for their time. Thanks to Savannah Smith for putting this all together. And as always, the biggest thanks to you for giving us your time and letting us be a small part of your life. Um, All right. Have a great weekend, guys. Be kind.